Philippians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with someone, we'll just look on the screen. Starting at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I'm just going to pray for God's help while Michael comes up. Our Father God, we thank you um, that in your kindness you've made yourself known to us. And we ask that you'd speak to us now through Michael's words. Amen. Thanks, Steph. You can um, follow what I'm going to say on the outline that came in through the door. And... uh That'd be great. That'd be great help for me. And I'd love to interact with you on um, on Twitter. So I think my Twitter address is there. I'd love to. Um, I, I'm basically desperate for friends, and uh, I'm, com- I'm a complete trollop when it comes to in- social media. So uh, please uh, interact with me there. I'd love to. I'd interact with you. I'd answer answer questions or uh, respond to points you might make. That would be terrific. Can I say dialogue dinners? I've been to a few myself over over the years. They're fantastic, and I've got to say, the great thing about inviting someone to a dialogue dinner is actually people really want to go and talk about spiritual things. They really do. If you say, come, and have, you're going to have a conversation about your spiritual experience. People love it. So uh, don't be afraid to invite people and have a great time doing it. They're, uh, they're fantastic. Uh, and you can actually take people places in the course of the dinner. Now, today we're actually going to address the second in our series called The Christian Revolution, the second of the great uh, sort of pillars, the, the, the great themes that we've stolen from the French Revolution uh, with liberty last week. It's going to be fraternity next week today. It's the virtue of equality. And after liberty, equality may be, of all the political concepts, the most adored, the one we like the most. It's part of the self-mythology of Western society, the societies we inhabit, um, that we see ourselves as treating our citizens with e- equality, that we're established on a, f- on, on a basis of equality. Struggle for equality is part of the story we tell ourselves as defining what we most like about our society. The noted political theorist uh, Ronald Dworkin, who just died this year, very famous and well-regarded political philosopher, he wrote this in a book called Sovereign Virtue, No government is legitimate that does not show equal concern for the fate of all those citizens over whom it claims dominion and from whom it claims allegiance. 
equal concern is the sovereign virtue of political community. He says, sovereign, the highest good. It's the best thing. Equality. The, the one that's the master virtue of all the others. The highest good, he says, that a society can pursue is the equality of its citizens. In other words, uh, well, we might say uh, that it's the best, best things in sliced bread. It's certainly a popular idea. In, in Australia in particular, which shares the new world spirit, um, opposed to class-bound Europe with its kings and dukes and duchesses and all the rest, we fantasise that we're living in an egalitarian society. Equality equals a fair go. We like, that's what we want to hear, we've got a fair go. It is fair dinkum, that Aussie word, which means basically everything's for real, it's all right, we're, we're all mates here. It just feels right to count people as equals and not by some accident of birth as superior or inferior to one another. And so we, we do things like we sit in the front seat alongside the taxi driver, right? We don't sit in the back. That's weird. In Europe, they sit in the back. Here we sit because we're not better than the taxi driver. I even saw John Howard once sitting next to his chauffeur in the prime ministerial car. I mean, he's trying to show that he's equal, even if he didn't believe it. He's trying to show that he's an equal citizen with the guy who's driving his car. And he would have called him mate and expected to have been called mate in return. We call everyone on a first name basis or even we shorten the first names to, you know, Baz, Daz, Shaz, Gaz, Maz, Kaz, Blaz, Flaz, Shash, Baz, if we can. Now lately, of course, this notion of equality has been the central plank in the campaign for same-sex marriage, hasn't it? Uh, the slogan has been, are you in favour of marriage equality? The surveys come out, you know, they ring you at tea time, are you in favour of marriage equality? Well, of course you're going to answer yes. It sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Doesn't everyone want to be in favour of equality? Do you want to be in favour of inequality? Are you in favour of discrimination? It's a very powerful word. Whatever you think of that debate, that word has been specifically used because it actually has traction in our community, because equality is something we all want and we all believe we show others. It's a very, very powerful world. And partly this becomes right, comes rightly as a response to the evils that come with inequality. The hideous crimes of racism abounding in modern history leave us feeling nauseous, or they, at least they ought to. Few would seriously advocate a return to the, system, the systemic inequality shown towards women of just a generation ago. We love it. And it feels that there's some, something natural, right about equality. And it's behind, that, that feeling is behind the greatest statement of equality in all of uh, modern history, the US Declaration of Independence. You may, these words may uh, ring something in your consciousness. You may have heard them before. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That's a big claim, isn't it? That there are self-evident truths. That, that is truths that are just, just are true. And what is the truth they hold to be self-evident? That all men are created equal and that are endowed with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Created equal. This is obvious, says the US Declaration of Independence. Equality is apparently self-justifying occurring in nature some like some biological specimen or a mathematical principle whose benefits must surely flow if governments have the will to pursue it. But the problem with equality is it's a more confused and confusing idea than it at first appears. So I'm on to that point, a confused idea. The very word equality begs the question, equality of what? Equality according to what? In respect to what? 
In what exactly is it that human beings ought to be equal or held to be equal? Should we have equal opportunities or should we have equality in distribution of resources? That's kind of the Marxist answer, isn't it? That everyone should have the same stuff. It might make sense for society to provide me, for example, with an equality of bus transport or telephones or to make sure that I have an equality in education. But what about other things like, like helicopters? Would it make sense for us to have an equal share in helicopters? And, and does equality apply only from one individual to another? We're all equal. Uh, or does it also apply between groups? Should groups be held to be equal to one another? Can we talk about groups as having an equal stake or an equal respect or an equal uh, right in society? For example, you may give people with disabilities special car spaces, which is unequal treatment in order to give them equal access to shopping malls. Now, this is a fairly straightforward example, but it shows that you, in one sense, have to treat people unequally in order to get an equality of result. Uh, but considering the needs of millions of individuals, the millions of unequal individuals that make up society is enormously complex and fraught with danger. The tax department sure hasn't got it right. But one further example of the way the pursuit of equality has become confused is the way in which feminists have divided over how and what feminine distinctives might be maintained and celebrated while at the same time pursuing equality with men in every sphere of life. If I'm to pursue equality, does that mean I lose my identity at the same time? That's the question. I'm not saying that, that there's a right or wrong answer to that question, just that it is a truth. If you pursue inequality in one area, how are you to maintain your distinctives in another? That's the fraught idea of equality, what makes it so complex and confusing and indeed, I think, confused. And partly this is because this idea of equality desperately reaches for foundations. It really hasn't got much to stand on. Equality is a quality idea, and that's our hunch, but it isn't as self-evident as we think it is, despite what the Declaration of Independence says. Nature most certainly does not confer a self-evident equality on human beings, but rather quite the opposite. We are born with different capacities and abilities into different families and in different places. In fact, the social Darwinians of the 19th century were able to mount a case from their reading of nature that some races were inherently superior and some were basically subhuman. Uh, it's interesting to read those lists. Strangely, the Irish were often at the bottom. Uh, anyone got Irish? I've got Irish heritage. Yeah, in Australia, you know, pretty much half of us do. And who says that, who says who has a place at the table of equals? What is it that makes you an individual worthy of equal respect with others? Who is invited to the dinner of equality? Uh, are refugees invited? Are the disabled invited? Well, leading ethicist, Australian ethicist Peter Singer uh, certainly questions the natural right of the severely disabled to an equality of life amongst healthy human beings and an equality of health care or an outcome of health care. And though many secular thinkers smell something wrong with this, uh, they can, I think, only flap about ineffectually in response. Without a real grounding of equality, there's no reason particularly why we should prefer it or pursue it. And I would also want to say that there is in fact among us, despite our rhetoric, a concealed delight in inequality. We actually 
quite liked inequality. On the face of it, equality as supremacy is an ideal. The reality of the world is that it's becoming more unequal, not less, and we kind of like it that way. We have a taste for inequality and, frankly, we like it. That's why you're at Sydney University and not at some other, you know, tech place, right? You're at the, you're at the best, speaking as a, fellow, as a graduate, um, you've chosen the, the most elite institution in the nation in order to give yourself an advantage because you think it, it, it might get you ahead of others. You're happy with that inequality, aren't you? Oh, we, we all are, really. Uh, philosopher Alain de Botton, uh, he argues that we've exchanged aristocracy for meritocracy, but really the same, that they're both uh, examples of inequality, they're both pursuits of inequality, partly because we love to think that we may be inherently better than someone else, and probably our parents have been telling us ever since we were little kids. Australians may consider themselves egalitarian, but the recent statistics bear out a different story, markedly different story. 45% of our wealth is held by only 10% of the households, while fully half of Australia's households scrabble over the last 7%. Women are still massively underrepresented in parliaments, underrepresented in parliaments and on company boards, and earn over, on average, significantly less than men. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are 10% more likely to be unemployed, massively overrepresented in jails, three times more likely to lose a child in infancy and have a life expectancy a full 18 years less. 18 years less than other Australians. I, I imagine you are hoping that you will live to 80, right? Perhaps you'll think by the time you get to that age, the life expectancy might be, let's say it's 82. If you're an Aboriginal person, uh, deduct 18 years, almost 20 years from that, 20 years of life that you don't have an expectation to. Uh, in, that's Australia for you. A snapshot of Australia, supposedly the land of the great Ergo, egalitarian, uh, but in reality, not so much. Now, remarkably, some political philosophers are now recognising the necessity of giving a theological account of equality. The English economist R.H. Tawney put it as nakedly as this in the middle of the century. He said, in order to, the last century, that is, in order to believe in human equality, it is necessary to believe in God. Friedrich Nietzsche, in the 19th century, he of the kind of long walks in the Swiss Alps and the bristling moustaches and going mad and all the rest, as all fine philosophers probably should do, he loathed the idea of equality. He railed against equality. He thought it was stupid. It was actually corrupting the human spirit and he blamed Christians for it. He said, this is a Christianity, it's the idea of Christianity and it's corrupting humanity, it's holding us back. It's a stupid idea. The great John Locke in the, in the 17th century, the great founding father of political philosophy, really, and of the idea of political equality, explicitly anchored his work, his account of equality in a massive treatise which was basically reading the Bible. It was basically an expo exposition of scripture, of something that's conveniently forgotten by those who hold him as a hero today. You see, the, the equality that our neighbours consider so self-evident is in fact rooted in the biblical revelation. So then, what account does the Bible give of human equality? What do we find when we look at the Bible? Since it's a kind of idea at large, a kind of loose idea that seems to be applied all over the shop, does the Bible give us something more concrete, something more grounded? Well, let's start with the command of God to humankind after that they should love him, 
that they should love their neighbours as themselves. So I'm over on the roots of equality here and trying to give a theological account. I'm down now to love of neighbour. In regards to the needs of your neighbour, consider them as you would consider yourself. That's the heart of the Bible's command to human beings. Think as you would about yourself and your own needs and apply that to the needs and wants of your neighbour. See your own reflection in the face of the other person that you encounter. Regard your neighbour as your equal because he or she has been given existence on the same terms as you have been given existence. Just as you are a creature of God, so they are a creature of the same God and so worthy of equal respect, worthy of to be held as an equal. Now this is expressed marvellously in story form by Jesus in the great parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, it's a, famous, it's a famous story, isn't it? But it's an expression of the way in which biblical equality is meant to be lived out. Of course, the Samaritan is good. He's called good because he's got no regard for the national and the ethnic and the racial and cultural boundaries, religious boundaries that would normally separate human beings. These potential neighbours, these neighbouring nations. He doesn't care. The Samaritan, what does he do when he sees the fallen Israelite? He picks him up and he tends to him. And at least he realises that the God who created all is the God of all. What the Samaritan did right was seeing himself in the stricken man at his feet, enough that he could love him. When you love God with all your heart and with all your strength and all your mind, you love him as the maker of all. And that means the maker of all people. And it will lead to discovering in your neighbours, even though, as, as your neighbours, even those who are beyond the boundaries of who you think the chosen people are. It is the Samaritan who truly obeys the ancient law. And ironically, this outsider is the one who can call him truly a member of the call himself truly a member of the people of God. He has got it. As the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once wrote. Um, he said, the neighbour is the absolutely true expression for human equality. In case everyone were in truth to love his neighbour as himself, complete human equality would be attained. Everyone who loves his neighbour in truth expresses unconditionally human equality. Everyone who loves his neighbour in truth expresses unconditionally human equality. Now that this command comes from the God who requires wholehearted love of himself is a remarkable affirmation from him of the worth and dignity of all human beings. The original condition, if you go back to Genesis 1, the original condition of, of human beings is one of profound equality. The stamping of all humankind with the image of God that male and female he created them at the beginning, all of them given the image of God, declared to be made in God's image. Uh, is the basis for a profound equality, a signal that they ordered one to the other as equals. If they are equal, it's because God declares them to be. He sees them as equal. And amongst the animals, Adam can find no suitable companion. We referred to that little incident last week. But of course, when he meets Eve, he says, gee, she's weird. He says nothing of the kind. What does he say? He says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is the one who is like me. This is the one who is of the same stuff as me, equal to me, my right companion, made of the same stuff as I am. 
She is the one with whom dominion of the earth can be shared and with whom the task of filling the creation can be undertaken. Notice that the difference of male and female is not at all a difficulty for the scriptures' account of their essential equality. They're still different, but certainly they are held to be absolutely equal. However, with the fall, as we read about it in Genesis chapter 3, that relationship was soured into domination, inequality and subordination. Equal relationships were disturbed. As Eve is told, her husband will rule over her. Inequality is a punishment. Gender relations are forever imbalanced in this sinister way. And it's the testimony of the scriptures that God, God holds human beings equally accountable to him in his judgment of them. That's the sad, tragic fact that our equality is not just based on God's equality of us in his creation, that he created us all, but that he holds us all accountable, equally accountable. He doesn't let anybody off or treat anyone else, treat people uh, with difference at that level. Uh, even choosing Israel as his people doesn't kind of nix this claim at all, doesn't undermine it, because as they discovered, they were chosen simply to be a light for the nations, to be for the sake of all the other peoples of the earth. He was not the God of Jews only, but the God of Gentiles too. The mark of the worth and dignity of each human being is that God asks each to answer for what he or she has done. As an illustration of this final judgment, perhaps, it was clear that before the law, each Israelite stood equal. That ancient text says something profound about human equality. It says, you shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbour. That's in, in Leviticus, right at the beginning of the Bible. And we might compare this with a kind of a text roughly contemporary with it, um, you know, perhaps out by a few hundred years, but this is the Hindu code of Manu. Uh, it, it's massively unequal. It's describing, I've got a quote from it there, describing the way in which different members of different castes should treat one another. Um, a, a kashistra, having defamed a brahmana, shall be fined 100 panas. A Vaisaya, 150 or 200, a Sudra shall suffer corporal punishment. So if you're a different person, there's a kind of grading of punishments depending on the respect you should show people uh, who, are, who are at different grades uh, from you in the caste system. A Brahmana shall be fined 50 panas for defaming a Kasistra. In the case of a Saya, the fine shall be 25 panas. In the case of a Sudra, 12. A once-born man, a sudra who insults a twice-born man with gross invective, shall have his tongue cut out, for he is of low origin. If he mentions the names and the castes of the twice-born with contempt, an iron nail, ten fingers long, shall be thrust bed-hot into his mouth. Unequal punishments. Something else, though, is announced in the, in the Bible under the category of God's judgment. God will no, not long ignore the injustice of social inequality the rapacious greed, the lust for power, the abuse of the poor, the neglect of the widow and the orphan, the abuse of the foreigner. The prophets in Israel at the end of the Old Testament deliver in spades this promise of God that he will not neglect injustice and inequality. This promise further expounded by Jesus himself in severe terms that God will overturn the power structures of the world that have been so badly abused as Mary, Jesus' mother, puts it in her wonderful song at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, the rich will go away empty and the poor will be filled. Now Luke's Gospel, of course, is filled with tales of how the coming of Jesus Christ restores the long-neglected social imbalance. 
restores the balance, I should say, doesn't restore the imbalance, restore, uh, fixes the imbalance. And it's the gospel of Jesus that does it, in fact. The gospel, the message of free forgiveness on offer to all human beings. That is the power of God for the salvation, not just of a bunch of chosen people, of a small tribe over here who belong to the same ethnicity, of one gender over the other, of one social class over the other, but, says Paul, it's the power for all who believe, the Jew and the Gentile, all people. And that's the message that we call justification by faith. You see, if you're justified by faith, faith is a nothing. Faith is something almost entirely empty. It's merely clinging on. You can't boast in faith, says the Bible. The faith is nothing that you earn or nothing that you merit. It's not like, like courage. It's not some kind of virtue that you practice and acquire. It's nothing you can boast in. And in the people of God, that means that there is a complete spiritual equality. No one can speak of themselves as superior to another in the people of God. If, in order to get into the people of God, faith is the only requirement, faith in the gospel of God, since it's a nothing. And this was expressed in the early Christian community, especially by the Christians gathering to share food together. Even though, you know, sharing food is a big deal if you believe the people down the road are unclean, if you believe they stink, or if you believe eating with them will corrupt you in some way, will make you, make you defiled. And yet what the Christians did was, despite their, different, their differences, they ate together, they shared things together. They did exactly what was not going on in the world around them. And so meals were very significant for them. They symbolised the relativising of all those worldly distinctions that they, they had as believers. By all accounts, it was a radically egalitarian community. As Luke talks about it in Acts, the Jerusalem church was engaged in this generous sharing of mutual possessions, selling stuff and giving it to the poor uh, amongst them so that there wouldn't be an imbalance um, as they came together. A little later on, Paul, the apostle, was dismayed at the way in which the social distinctions and arrogance of, of the world had crept into the church at Corinth as they celebrated the Lord's Supper. People were coming and getting drunk and feasting because they'd bring their own food and show up. Well, I've got the gourmet stuff and you're just eating fish and chips. Ha! And he says, this cannot be the Lord's Supper that you eat since you're all meant to share in the one bread. That's the ludicrous travesty of the Lord's Supper if you do it that way. Onesimus, the slave, whose story is told in the book of Philemon. He was to return to his master, Philemon, but to be welcomed back, not simply as a slave, but as a brother, as a brother, for the master and the slave to call each other brother. A remarkable testimony against the kind of power structures and injustices of the world. And James, in the book of James, he positively hoes into his readers for observing the, 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 uh, the social distinctions and favouritism with regard to the wealthy. You know, the wealthy person comes in, you give them the best seat. We always do that, don't we? The most highly regarded person, uh, we make sure they sit in the biggest, most important chair. James says, that's ridiculous, you should do the opposite. The least among you should sit in the most important spot, if you have to have an important spot. The equality of the believers was not held to be a merely spiritual reality. It was to be expressed in the actions of the church. And what were we to do with this equality when we received and understood it? Well, for once, what Jesus would do is the right question. It's not always the right question. I, I've seen an ad for the car that Jesus would drive. What would Jesus drive? 
you know, or what footwear should I wear? What would Jesus wear? Well, we'd all be wearing sandals. That's obviously not the right question to ask there. But here, what would Jesus do is exactly the right question because as we heard in the, 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 letter, from, uh, the letter to the Philippians, we hear what Jesus does with his equality, not to human beings, but to God. This is what he does. He says, our attitude, well, this is what Paul says, our attitude is to be the same as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what to do with equality, is to seek the good of the other. Notice what equality does not mean in the Bible's account of it. It does not mean that there are no differences between people. It does not erase differences. In fact, quite the opposite. Though it promises the restitution of injustices, the Bible celebrates and delights in difference. The complementary difference of male and female is not dissolved by their basic created equality or by their union together in Christ, their sharing in him. Also, just as the Old Testament described the king as merely a leader of his peers rather than a superior order of being. I mean, in the ancient world, kings and emperors were divine. And people, we were just kind of minions. We were just kind of creatures like beasts of the field. The rest of us, kings were of a different order. In the Old Testament, the king is only one, you know, he's just one of, one of his brothers, one of his people. He is like them. And ought to remember that he is so, lest he gets too big for himself. He is not divine. He is human. And just as that was the case in the Old Testament, the New Testament recognises that people are differently gifted to serve and that it's okay for some to be leaders and to have authority over others. But that doesn't mean that they are somehow essentially different from, uh, from those that they lead. It, doesn't, it means that you can have a leadership or an authority exercise without saying that it's happening between different orders of people. What we have from the Bible is not a bland levelling equality. Rather, we have an equality that is the byproduct of love. If there's one thing to take home today, it's this, that the Bible's equality, the Bible's vision of equality is that it is a byproduct of love. It seeks, in fact, an imbalance in favour of the other according to needs. So, once again, we come to consider the implication for the Bible's teaching on this subject and we consider it in the light of the church in two contexts, in the church and in the world. And firstly, the church. Well, I think the challenge for us in churches and Christian communities like the EU is to really believe in our essential equality in Christ, despite our differences in gender, race, ethnic background and our status, what school we went to, all the rest of it, what suburb we come from. I know I grew up in Newtown and in those days, uh, if ever I mentioned to anyone, I, went to, I was from Newtown, everyone would go, Newtown? <laughs> what a hole! how things have changed. <laughs> I live in Newtown. Uh, see, the church is not a hierarchy. It's not essentially a hierarchy. It's not, it isn't a hierarchy. It's an equality. The people of Jesus Christ have to heed immediately the words of writers like James and to work really hard against our temptation to preserve the inequalities of the world around us. We can stop sucking up to the rich for a start. We can stop glorifying celebrities for a start or doing what we do in our culture and assuming that because someone is a lawyer, doctor, professor, that they are more worthy of respect than someone with a very dull CV. 
people still think lawyers are worthy of respect? I think they do, don't they? Lawyers, yeah. Certainly doctors. And we can start by welcoming wholeheartedly the poor and disadvantaged into our midst, even though they may be black holes of our time. You know that person you meet in church and you, you talk to them for an hour and you feel completely drained afterwards because nothing they say made any sense? Not the minister I'm talking about. That person, you know, the person, every church has them, I'm glad to say. Well, welcome them. There should be more of those people in there. Make it possible for them to be. It's not glamorous to have them, isn't it? It doesn't make your church the, the place where all the good looking people go. You should be proud of being a church where all the ugly people go. Talking myself into a little bit of a hole there, but anyway. <laughs> Be remarkable and adventurous in doing this, I think. That's what I'd like to challenge you to do. We can make church life as free of any racism or paternalistic attitudes to Christians of other nationalities and cultures and genders as possible. I'm not saying this is easy at all. It's not. But it means also asking people who are in your churches who, who are perhaps in some way socially disadvantaged, perhaps asking them, are they, do they really feel an equal member? Who gets up the front, for instance? Who's interviewed? Whose opinion is asked? That's a, that's a good sign of who is held to be uh, worthy of honour in your community. I, I have to say, I speak as someone who has been guilty more than once of assuming that white and male is best. Well, what about the world? What about our community, our political community that we live in? What about that inequality? Now, as we've seen, for all the egalitarian rhetoric of Australian society, it's moving rapidly towards a greater inequality in terms of wealth and with it, hand in hand, a reordering of society on the basis of status, which is guaranteed to be deeply divisive. There are places in Sydney where, it, where you basically say that is a place where the have-nots live. You might, be, you might be from such a place. There are places, little communities in Sydney, where people have virtually nothing. There are places in Sydney where people are just kind of can't move for their possessions. They have so much. They don't know what to do with it. They can't have that many overseas trips in a year. They only drive one BMW at a time. What are some of the marks of this growing inequality? Well, I choose to pick on one in which the Christian community is, of course, deeply complicit, and that's in education, especially secondary education. A good education is presumed in our society to be a ticket to higher status, a better job, a better life. And with its policies, the current government and the government before it and the government that's going to come next has and will make it possible for many, many more people to choose a superior, what they think to be a superior education for their children. Now, I went to a private school. I taught in two private schools. I have a son at a private school and my other children are, I hope, going to go to uh, good private schools. And they've been deeply enriching experiences with wonderful facilities and fantastic teachers who are interested in me and uh, extracurricular activities and strange uniforms and funny hats and all the rest of that. But it's getting a little obscene. Recently, my old school wrote to all the old boys and asked for financial help in building a multi-million dollar gymnasium for its primary school, for one of its primary schools. Multi-million dollar gym. And it's free to do so. But this struck me as being somehow obscene that I would give my money to this and not to the local school where my other kids now go, which cannot even keep the rain off the heads of its students cannot afford air conditioning for its overheat, you know, its stuffy classrooms. But this church school with Christian foundations somehow 
is well enough resourced to even consider it, while the public schools, the schools near here cannot even keep the water from coming through the roof. The, the money for this gym would be the entire budget for many public schools. The governments of Australia have pursued policies that have run down these schools and made one of the fundamental planks in our supposedly egalitarian society a free education, which the church actually fostered, the church has actually fostered in the 19th century, have made it actually a dubious benefit. And I say this to you as future parents, future council members, people who will have a stake, future teachers who will have a stake in this. I'm not saying close private schools, far from it. But I'm saying, what about this inequality? Is there room for a generosity that heads in another direction? Is there room for us to not hoard our resources but actually work for the good of all community so that we produce a more social, socially just and equal outcome? Secondly, I think we need to call Australia and Australians to a more even-handed treatment of different racial groups. I'm almost, I'm almost done. I know the time is wasting away. That's what the Gospel of Jesus has taught us, especially it's taught us about the different nations, that the different nations will be equally gathered, and that people from every tribe and tongue have been called in the Gospel of God. We should remember the inequality of Indigenous Australians as a disgrace to us all. Not that there are simple answers or that I know any in particular, but that the love of neighbour demands that we not simply ignore it as a blackfella problem or something that the government department needs to deal with. We should challenge the famous Australian xenophobia as well. After all, the second verse of our national anthem says we've got boundless planes to share. At the moment I think it's something like we've got boundless planes to dig up the rocks from uh, and we don't want others to share it at all. Biblical equality demands that we heed the call of those who come to our shores for help, seeing them primarily as fellow creatures of God rather than somehow as less than human. Now these are only beginnings and I'm sure there's much to debate about how this means, but how this works out. But of course the principles are there for us. I hope there are many, many more ways in which the biblical descriptions of human beings as equals through that call of us to love God and then to love our neighbours as ourselves. I'm hopeful that that vision can transform us as a church, as Christian groups and of course as a nation as well. Amen.